Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Tobias Wright. We are America's Talk, radio show about opera, period. No one talks with you about opera week in, week out like we do. And what's more, on our show, you get to have your say live on the air. Call us on 847-866-WNUR. That's 847-866-9687. Or if you're the shy type, you can leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Well, we took Independence Day off last week, and we've got a loaded show for you this week. Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with baritone David John Pike, who tells us about coaching the role of Scarpia from Buccini's Tosca with Cheryl Milnes, and about singing George Butterworth's A Shropshire Lad on the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. But first, it's our Chalk Talk segment. Ticket sales are up at Los Angeles Opera and the Wiener Staatsoper, but they're down at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. What factors are pushing these numbers up or down, and who's responsible? Tobias and I have some theories to share. Plus, in 15 minutes, Giovanna Jacques checks in from the Bellini Museum in Sicily. We've got all your opera headlines in the two-minute drill, and at 9.45 p.m., Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback after seeing Renee Fleming in performance. Let's do this. We are live. No edits. No filters. Kickoff is next. Keep it locked right here, right now, on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago, and Opera. Opera box score. So tender, slowly whispered, he'd have been a sweet caress. Swears he never leave, he never lied to her again. Never lied to her again. He never lied to her again. You're listening to Opera. With George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Oh, it's Monday night. That can only mean one thing, that it's Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here on WNUR, joined by Tobias Wright. Monday nights. What a beautiful thing. And George, I just have to say, like all the adventures I go on in my life, I'm really thankful that I've not been fired from this one. Have you been fired from a lot of jobs? I don't talk about my personal business on air. I, under, I understand. But I'm just glad I haven't been fired from this okay. one. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Dude, I don't I don't know what you would have to do to be fired from this, apart from swear in the air, which you don't do. Which, well, we just try to make sure that I don't. Exactly. Well, you're easier to corral than Oliver. I never know what Oliver's going to say, but that's why we love him. I don't think Oliver knows what Oliver is going to say. It's beautiful, though. And most of the time, it sounds beautiful when he says it. What did you do for uh, Independence Day? I uh, filled up, I don't know if I can say this, I filled up my entire bathtub full of uh, PBR and uh, had friends come over and drink it. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. I I filled up my bathtub with cans of PBR, not just actual liquid. Oh, yeah. Wow. Now that would have been impressive, Toby. (laughs) Uh, It was good. How was your fourth? It was was good. It was good. You know, the kitties, they like the fireworks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we bought some stuff at Walgreens and set that off in the street. Beautiful. And then we went over to the uh, Chicago Park District Park near our house. 
and watched everybody else set off some big fireworks. Yeah. I live right by a huge park up by Loyola University, right. and it was just awesome. It was yeah. awesome. It was a massive humanity. It was a melting pot of of different races and backgrounds, and I love, love, love that part of my neighborhood. That's a very Chicago thing, is just to like go to the nearest baseball diamond and just set off a whole bunch of yeah. fireworks that you bought in <laughs> Indiana. Yeah. Uh, it was speaking, awesome. It was good. It was a good time. Well, you know, so we took the week off last week. We're back here. Tons to talk about. Let's get started right away on Chalk Talk. Let's do it. So uh, looking at some of the headlines in the past couple weeks, Los Angeles Opera, which is now in its 30th season, which sounds young to me. It does sound young. It is young. Well, I mean, everything in L.A. is not that old, right? Well, I mean, you think back, I, and I'm a history guy, so I when I think of L.A. and I think of California, I think of all the the different World War II things, and then you think back even further and you have the gold rush and when humanity started going west. And But yeah, relatively new to have 30 years be all that we have for one of the prominent opera houses um, in the United States. Well, and they're doing fantastic. So they just announced uh, their ticket sales from the past season. 20% increase in the number of tickets that they've sold. Uh, that puts them over 118,000 tickets. Ticket revenue... $14. million, up from $3 million last year. The average cost of a ticket has also gone up. Uh, it was 126, $126 bucks yeah, which last season. isn't cheap. Yeah, and, and that's the average. That's the average. So, I, you know, in reading this first article, so our chalk talk today, we're going to talk about L.A. Opera, Wiener Stadt's Opera, and then we're going to talk about, lastly, the Metropolitan Opera. Um, and there are three different we have three different articles and we can share the links with everyone on our website so you have this information as well um but there are three different operas pertaining to the same thing or or three different articles pertaining to the same thing and i think what was interesting about the la one is that they made more money at least from a profit standpoint it wasn't necessarily that they sold an incredible amount more um excuse me of tickets um and so I thought that was interesting. It wasn't necessarily misleading, but they did raise prices. And that's how they, of course, that adds to, you know, them supposedly being more successful. And exactly. Well, I guess it depends, like, what numbers we're, we're, we're looking at here. Uh, you know, you look at the Wiener Staatsoper, which has also announced uh, its ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just announced a number, which was uh, 35 million euros. Right. Um, and listen, get their attendance. Their attendance two seasons ago was 99%. It's now down to 98%. Oh, <laughs> they're suffering. But, you know, over long, I, I think that's fantastic. And I was going to say what was more interesting to me was the percentage um, right. of seats sold rather than the revenue. And I thought that was incredible that they do what it, I can't remember how many performances it said they, that they did, but... It's well, a staggering number, yeah, and to be at almost 99%, um, with the Met, by comparison, being in the you know the middle 60s as yeah. far as percent, percentages goes, I, that's incredible. What do you think uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago is at, if you just had to hazard a guess? If I had to hazard a guess, um, you know, they do eight shows, and each show uh, runs between six and eight performances, mm-hmm. so you do the math on that, and there's somewhere between 50 and 70 performances a year, depending. Right. Um, I would say that the lyric probably is in the 70s uh, as far as percentage of seats. And then, of course, what the lyric does to combat that is they have their rush ticket program, which I know helps. Uh, and they also have the next uh, program, which is for college students. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the lyric tries to be as proactive as possible to get people in the seats, regardless of what the profit ends up being. They want people at their shows because it, yeah. too, is a huge opera house. Yeah. Yeah. It's way too big. 
It is. In my opinion. It is. It's like 3,500 seats. It's it's smaller than the Met. Met's yeah. 34, but it's at yeah. 3,000 or above. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, which it matters little, but I do have a voice and a platform right now. And in my opinion, that's too big to do yeah. opera. And I've been to the Met and um, I've been to the Lyric, obviously, many, many times. Sure. And I have to say that my favorite opera-going experiences didn't happen in huge theaters. Yeah. Um, because at that point it becomes more of a spectacle, which is great because opera is grand opera is a spectacle, but part of what, and I really encourage our listeners to go read the article that we're going to post about the Met. And it's really interesting. It makes it, and it's a New York times article. I do believe correct. No wall street journal. Yeah, it's a journal. Um, it makes an interesting point that they can't do an intimate production at the Met. So why do you think the Met is in the mid sixties in terms of its, uh, percentage of capacity and places like L.A. are selling out, Wienerstadt's are selling out. What, what's the reason? Well, people much, much smarter and more qualified than me are still working on this problem. Of course, <laughs> yes. But, you know, for me, I think of, you know, all of my friends. and I, Well, not all of them, but a lot of my friends are also singers. Um, can I afford a ticket at 150 a pop? No. I just can't. Yeah. I cannot. And would I like to be able to? Absolutely. But my disposable income, I'm spending on things like groceries. Mm-hmm. Or if I have extra money, as someone who's a young artist who's trying to pursue a career, I'm saving it so I can get a coaching. I'm saving it so I can get a voice lesson. I'm saving it so I can apply to do an audition. Mm-hmm. And I don't have $150 extra to go see the Met as much as I would love to do it. Um, but that's one demographic. I think the other thing, too, that you have to think about is what what is a tourist going to New York for? Uh, well, probably not the opera. Right. So Broadway, I would have thought. Sure. And name a musical on Broadway right now. That's Hamilton. Real. Boom. And you know what? You can't get tickets to Hamilton. Of course, of course you can't right. get a ticket. And, and I look at that and I think, what is it about that show that has captivated so many different people? And it's a new work. And it, I mean, truly, it's not just that people are like, oh, it's a great musical. Mm-hmm. It's that, that show has made people sit and think and look themselves in the mirror. And I think that's freaking awesome. I mean, that's what good art is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so something like that has really turned people on to going to New York and making sure that before they go there, they're going to somehow try and secure a ticket for that show. And that's part of what they're going for. And I don't think... I don't know how you make that happen at the Met, but um, if you can tap into tourism, and it talks about this in the article, if you can tap into tourism and get more tourists excited to go to the opera when they're in New York City, you can close a huge gap in some of your deficits. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, changes moving forward at the Met. Um, I know, you know, last year they almost had to shut their doors because of right. the negotiations with the right. musicians. And I mean, how crazy is that? Yeah. That they almost closed because of the musicians not wanting to work there. Crazy. You know? I mean, here's here's my take on it, is that if you look at the types of operas that a place like L.A. is doing or the Wiener Staatsoper is doing, they are doing works that are, that are part of the canon, but that are perhaps lesser known, or they're doing new works, but they're not necessarily doing the same big canonical productions in exactly the same way. Right. So uh, they're doing Philip Glass Akhenaten next season. Awesome. They're doing a new <laughs> Who does that? Nobody. Nobody does that. <laughs> they're doing a new production of uh, Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio, directed by James Robinson, who's at Opera Theater of St. Louis. Uh, they're doing a new opera called Nosferatu. So it's, it's the... Um, 
vampire mm-hmm. story. Uh, this production of Macbeth, which looks totally dope. If you're looking at the website, <laughs> it's like people wearing like black leather jackets, and this woman is wearing like a furry coat. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, let, heading over to the Met Opera. I mean, look, we have seen all these shows before. Well, not it, only that, but they do the same. They do shows every year. Bohem gets yeah. done every year. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You know who loves La Boheme? Me. And you know who would be kind of weirded out if it was every single year at my local opera company? I would be. You would be weirded out. Um, and I think, you know, you look at L.A. and you talk about doing what they were doing there. Or like last year, the Lyric um, having uh, the, oh my gosh, I'm blanking right now. The new opera that they did. Belcanto. Belcanto. Thank mm-hmm. you so much with Re- that Renee Fleming helped commission and everything. And at least those companies are saying, you know what? We have to dare. We have to take a chance. We have to jump. We have to do something that no one else has done. No one else has thought about doing. And you know what? We're huge. That, the, Belcanto is a huge success here. Um, and I think uh, it'd be awesome to see new works being commissioned for them by uh, the men. There is literally, apart from uh, L'Amour de Loin, which is by uh, this woman composer from Finland, which is a new production, there is literally nothing on this list which is remotely interesting. I'll tell you right now, the Met is doing its opera a disservice by programming what they think opera goers want to see. They think people want to see that production of uh, Boheme with the fake snow. They think that people want to see, uh, what's this magic flute one? Oh my god, this is this is dreadful, like, geometric magic flute. Like, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to see it. Let me take you over to the Wiener Staatsoper. This is what they're doing. Uh, Gluck, uh, Armide. They're doing uh, Pelias et Melisande by uh, Debussy, uh, Parsifal, uh, Richard Wagner, and those are just the new productions. I mean, this is just a fraction of what their overall season is. I'm telling you, these, you know, the, the Met is doing its audience a disservice. Mm. And, and they're, I'm they're not, pandering to them. And I, I want to make really clear something. I'm not a Met hater, um, but, to, but there has to be a change. There, and not necessarily of leadership. I'm not going to get on that train because, like mm-hmm. I said, way smarter people to make that decision. But to be operating for the first time in their history, that was that was their lowest percentage of filled seats that they've ever had. Yeah. And that's got to scare some people. Yeah. Because, what I mean, opera's not going to die. I, I, I think as a young person, I used to think, opera's dying. I don't because everybody's always been saying opera's dying and it right. still hasn't died right. yet. So it'll continue to survive in some way. But as far as being something that is profitable um, and, and something that you can continue with in a 3,400-seat auditorium, man, there's got to be a change. To if, I mean, at least you hope that there's going to be a change that will excite people it's, and make them You know, Toby, as we've said on the show before, you know, the change is not going to come from the top down. It's just not. The change of opera in this country, it's going to come from grassroots, and it's going to come from the ground so up. So what changes is the Met? You know, and I will say this, as an opera fan, I want them to succeed. As an opera singer, or, excuse me, as an opera fan, I want the seats to be filled. Mm-hmm. As an opera singer, I hope the checks don't bounce. Yeah. So there's there, I do have two perspectives on this, um, but how do you change it? Like, what is the grassroots going to do to put more people in the Met? You well, know? it's going gonna, it's gonna to be getting opera out of the opera house. It's going to be doing old productions by composers that we know, but it's going to do them in, in new ways. What about curriculum? I've always thought about this, being that I was never educated on opera until I was actually in an opera. What? Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, what about changing? Is there, 
I never, and I was in, you know, choir and stuff, but I never had a music history course or like, and like, why not make that part of a, I, I, why not make that part of the education that our young people receive just even briefly? Oh, by the way, you know, we talk about all these things uh, with American history and world history and, and high school and stuff. Why not mention music? I don't know. I'm just thinking like, yeah. and now I'm just spewing BS and some of our listeners are probably <laughs> going to think like, that guy's crazy. They don't need that. No, but like really, why didn't I ever hear about an opera? You know, so I'm, so think about it. And I had been to New York City multiple times before I became an opera singer and never, ever, ever was going to go to the Met. Yeah. But think about it. What if I had like, what if? You know, what if somebody had told me about it and I had fallen in love with it sooner? Well, boom, that helps their percentage of seats. I don't know. I need to shut up. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. Well, you know who sent us uh, an oral postcard the other day was Giovanna Jacques. Giovanna! Yes, she is doing this um, Come tour Come back from of vacation. Europe. It's okay. She can stay out there for a couple more weeks. She's <laughs> having a very good time. But she sent us this hilarious little postcard uh, from the Bellini Museum in Sicily. And um, I want you guys to take a listen to this. Hi, boys. Welcome to week two of Giovanna's trip to Sicily. Today I got to see Bellini's winter home, which is in Catania, Sicily. Quite a large winter home, if I may say so myself. He came from a very prominent family. Bellini is the composer of the great operas such as Norma or La Somnambula. He is also responsible for a pretty substantial amount of uh, art song that, if I may say so myself, is quite underrated. Uh, the great thing about Bellini's house is are the artifacts that are currently there. We have his old conducting batons, we have a lot of his old scores, all of these pictures will be up on the website. Also a little bit gruesome is his coffin, uh, which is in there. And across the street, uh, if you are a little grossed out by the coffin and somehow that manages to make you hungry, there is a hot dog stand called Hot Dog Bellini. So there you have it from Giovanna. I put a photo of her that she sent me up on the website. Uh, it's her in front of the poster for the Bellini Museum. Uh, but all you can really see is her Bellinis. It's a funny photo. So oh, that's fantastic. I, but it looks like she's having a good time. You know, it was okay. funny. I... <laughs> It's always like people, I work in the restaurant industry, obviously, because I'm a poor person right. and, and starting artist, but people always want to order Bellinis from me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, if you only knew. <laughs> they'll, they'll never be the same, Tobias. But if you want to get your Bellini fixed here in Chicago next year, um, Norma. That's I true. Ma- no, you're not, ma- you're not making that uh, up. Right. Okay, actually. cool. I, is a, I, I cannot wait. It's being directed by Kevin Newbury, who's a colleague of mine and just fantastic director. It's a great show. I have a really good concept for Norma that I, I want to do one day. Uh, thank you, Giovanna Jacques, for thank checking you, in. Thank you, uh, Next up, after the break, we're going inside the huddle. Oliver Camacho uh, spoke to David John Pike, and this is the intro that he had. This interview was recorded last weekend when David John Pike was appearing with the Grant Park Music Festival in their presentation of Martineau's oratorio, The Epic of Gilgamesh. During this interview, we will listen to two performances recorded live, uh, the first of which is one of my favorite songs from Butterworth's song cycle, A Shropshire Lad. The song is called The Lads in Their Hundreds, and David Pike performs this song with pianist Matthew Larkin. It was recorded live from the Music and Beyond Festival in Ottawa, Canada in July of 2014. 
The second excerpt you will hear is from the Act One finale of Puccini's Tosca from a performance at the Pacific Opera Victoria from April of 2013. And finally, we do mention uh, a new commission or new work by Andrew Ager, a Canadian composer, uh, a cantata, uh, the complete version of which you can find on David John Pike's SoundCloud page. It's called The Unknown Soldier. We start off this interview talking about song. Uh, I should mention that uh, Mr. Pike has a really beautiful recording of English art song with composers like Vaughn Williams and Gerald Finzi. And that is on the Signum label. Uh, it's called Whither Must I Wander with pianist Isabel Trube. And you can purchase that on Amazon or you can download it or stream it from the places where you do that. I do start off this conversation asking David about his career in song and how one goes about that. We are going to get the full interview right after the break. You're listening to Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. We're streaming live at WNUR.org slash pop-up. And on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Listening to Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you say an opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. That is the show, Opera Box Score. George Cedarquist here along with Tobias Wright. Here we are. Uh, had you heard of David John Pike before Oliver uh, met him and did the interview? Um, I have not. But yeah. I'm excited to hear the rest of the interview and uh, hear more about him. Yeah, yeah he's, absolutely. he's cool. I've, I've not met him, but I did go to his website. Uh, there's a link to his site on our site, operaboxscore.squarespace.com. Uh, he's from Canada. He has done opera. He's done oratorio. He's done art song. He has some amazing stories to tell in this interview that he did. Sit back. Can we call him handsome, too? Because he's really he, handsome. He is pretty dashing. He's wearing that tuxedo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously Oliver was was all over. There's that, a reason. But, um, there's a reason Oliver yeah. interviewed him. <laughs> well, you know, the reality is that uh, the commercial reality mm -hmm. is that you know it's hard to uh, to sell leader and how hard to sell mm -hmm. art song. Um, opera is where the money is. Uh, I think that's a fair fair statement. And uh, so, therefore, you know, I was having this very conversation with Sir Thomas Allen, who's a very kind, um, how do you say, supporter and 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 uh, source of advice for me. And uh, um, he does what he can, he says, to promote poetry and promote art song um, as much as he can. And, and you know, he even sort of struggles with it, you know, to to put bums on seats when he does these 
tours, and I think, uh, and I've heard the same from other um, enormous um, singers. And um, um, so, um, nonetheless, I find the whole repertoire, the, particularly the English song repertoire, to be hugely satisfying and meaningful and uh, transcendent in many cases. And uh, I think it's it's something that's also very accessible, particularly to obviously to an English speaking audience. And uh, absolutely, and therefore. Um, yeah, I find audiences generally appreciate when we uh, when we, uh, we have yeah. something to say in the song. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm crazy about Butterworth, and we yeah. I think we were going to talk about Butterworth at some point. But um, I myself worked on the Shropshire Lad, even though I'm not a baritone. Uh, and there's something about that poetry that still feels so relevant. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, Butterworth, they say maybe he was gay, and that uh, what's his name, the poet. For Shropshire Lad, uh, oh, Houseman. Houseman, yeah, I think and, was accept, yeah. it's accepted that I think he was yeah, married, and so. you read about like his roommate and stuff like that, sure. and like then all of a sudden, the, and then you hear about Butterworth's, you know, young death, and all of it becomes so poignant and like so, yeah. yeah, and so it gives those songs such extra yes. level of, of meaning. You know, though. this year in particular is is a very poignant time to perform these because the fifth of August, okay, um, two thousand sixteen will mark the centenary of uh, Butterworth's death on the Somme at Pousière. Okay. Uh, um, and I will have the honor and pleasure of singing um, all 11 of these Butterworth um, Shropshire Lad songs uh, very near Pousière at a place called La Veille de Saint-Riquier uh, on the Somme uh, with the pianist Ian Burnside on the 7th of August, which is two days after uh, the centenary, in the presence of his family. And so it oh, should wow. be a very moving event. The lads in the hundreds to Ludlow come in for the fair. There's men from the barn and the forge and the mill and the forge. The lads for the girls and the lads for the liquor are there. And there with the rest are the lads that will never be old. There's chaps from the town and the field and the till and the cart. And many to count on the stalwart, and many the brave, and many the handsome of face, and the handsome of heart, and few that will carry their looks or their truth to the grave. I wish one could know them, I wish there were tokens to tell the fortunate fellows that now you can never discern. And then one could talk with them friendly and wish them farewell and watch them depart on the way that they will not return. Now you may stare as you like and there's nothing to scan and brushing your elbow one guest at and not to be told. They carry back right to the coin of the mintage of man, the lads that will die in their glory and never be Um, what are you working on right now, operatically? Well, well, actually, uh, on the operatic front, there's a couple of uh, projects brewing in Germany. Um, mm. I can't say much about them, but they're yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, let's say, um, you know, you'll be aware that I've, I've, I've got a scarpia under my belt. Yeah, I saw that in Victoria. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's more along those lines. Okay. I can say so. Uh, um, there's a couple of those brewing. 
Did I hear somewhere that you worked with Cheryl Mills on this role? Yeah, exactly. So I, as I mentioned, I, I had I met Cheryl through the Joan Norman program, and then you know subsequently was in contact with him, and uh, he very kindly um, um, invited me down to their place down in Tampa um, to work on my debut as, as yeah. Scarpia, and it's just fabulous what he did for for me in that role because he he really you know brought his you know how many performances of yeah. of that character you know put put on put on the table for the sort of the several two hour sessions i had with him and uh, you know little tricks you know the one thing that sticks in my mind is you know um on the entrance you know that rather fantastic entrance where where scarpia comes into the church and said what the hell is going on here yeah. you know such a noise in the church and he said, "You have to insist they give you a riding crop, and, and you know, <laughs> because you can just smack it against your against your boots and make a hell of a racket." And uh, little things like that that uh, that only years and years of experience uh, working with, with the very best uh, directors can 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 give you. And uh, you know, he's he's very much a fan of passing the baton. Yeah, well, I mean, Cheryl Millen's definitely has like this physicality and the way he performs that role. Yeah. And and you're not a gigantic guy. You're you're tall, but you're not like. You know? I'm not round, let's say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Say, yeah, exactly. yeah, you're live, you know. Yeah. I kind of think of you, if, if you know, Scarpia was related to, I mean, if Tosca was related to Game of Thrones, you'd be like Littlefinger. Which <laughs> okay. maybe means nothing to you, well, but no, our audience. Aware of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think, what you know, we discussed, Cheryl and I discussed this at some length, and, and uh, the opportunity perhaps for some, you know, you have to use what you have, right? Yeah. And so uh, without being immodest, I guess what I have is, is certain certain liveness, as you say, and, yeah. and suave. Um, uh, elegance elegance and yeah. so on so you know that was the character that we tried to to, to create uh, and working with the director that's what we did you know it was it was, it was a bit ambiguous is mm-hmm. he really just in love with Tosco or is it really an SOB and yeah. evil and so on and so forth and if you, you left the audience hanging that's actually quite an interesting thing to do and I think you know, judging from the reviews that we got from from the show, that's the effect we had. So that was really quite interesting. Um, you know, there the other style of Scarpy, of course, is yeah. the, it's a big bulk, yeah. uh, barking all the time, and that's interesting. Um, but I think uh, for me, what was multi layered and more interesting, therefore, was was uh, is to to do quite a smooth, elegant, noble character. Yeah, kind of like a hidden evil, like a psychopathic evil. <laughs> Something like As that. As opposed to exactly. somebody who just menace her physically, you know? Yeah, yeah. One of the reviewers uh, compared it to Anthony Hopkins, actually. Oh, in, nice. Uh, <laughs> it is in Silence of the Lambs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 The Hannibal Lecter thing. So I thought that was that was quite an honor. <laughs> I, even got, I even got all the traditional boos at the end of the show, so that was, awesome. that was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a mission accomplished, you know? But anyway, great role, and uh, and what, a, what an honor and a pleasure to have worked with, uh, with the great Cheryl Mills and her dad.
so one of our co-hosts, uh, Toby, this is for you, Toby, uh, loves music, uh, wartime music. And I feel like your Butterworth thing and the thing you're going to do in, how do you say this place? Uh, the place you're going to say. Oh, this. in, uh, in, uh, in L'Abbaye Saint-Riquier. 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 Yeah, but it's near something. It's yeah. near Abbeville, near Arras, near Vimy. Near, okay. near, uh, it's in the heart of the Somme. That's really good. Oh, the Somme. Okay. The Somme, okay. okay. How do you spell that? S-O-N-N-E. Okay, the Somme. That's okay. Somme. It's a, it's a battle place. So that actually, the, the battle started on the 1st of July. Um, yeah, so my World War One history is like zilch, you know. Right. So anyway, my, fr- my friend Toby is really interested in war music. And then I was looking around and I saw that you have this thing called Le Soldat Inconnu. Yeah, the Unknown Soldier. Yeah, so what is, I was listening to it, it sounds a little like Stravinsky and like David oh. Lang. And like, yeah. what what is this piece and what's... Well, it? yeah, it's it was... Uh, it was a, it's a new work by a Canadian composer called Andrew Ager, okay. and it's dedicated actually to his grandfather, great grandfather, who were at Vimy. Vimy was a was a battle which for Canadians was uh, was a very significant event. Uh, first time the Canadian forces uh, fought together and were uh, victorious in taking a, a strategic hill um, in Vimy, which is near uh, Arras in, in France, and. Um, happened in 1917 in April 17 so um, Andrew wanted to write a piece that wasn't sort of uh, emotional romantic uh, soppy reminiscent uh, reminiscence of the war but rather something that uh, was very straightforward and used um, poetry of real combatants of unknown soldiers Actually, the German piece was actually found in a barracks after the war. Can you imagine? So this, hmm. this thing was, um, was found there. Um, and so, then, but is the poetry in French? There's there's English, okay. um, French, and German. Okay. And um, the, actually, there's even some Walt Whitman in there. Oh, uh, nice. From Woundresser, maybe you're familiar with. with I'm that. familiar with Walt Whitman. I'm not from the Palsburg, but right. Yes. Well, so there's I do know something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this very moving passage. Um, uh, from from his work uh, that also uh, occurs in uh, Donna Nobis Pachin uh, by Ron, uh, Ron Williams, Rafe, Rafe yeah. Williams and of course to John, John Adams. John Adams, okay, Adams yeah. thank you. Not an opera, no, it's an oratory cantata. Okay, right. So um, and uh, anyway, so it's uh, eight movements, four of which are sung, um, and uh, you know the the instrumental movement is the first in each pair and mm-hmm. sets the themes, and uh, then the, the themes are sung in the second. So we're doing this in a number of locations over the next uh, year and a half, or, or two years, actually, until 1918. We're doing. We're being asked to do it in Berlin, actually, in, in 1918. Which would be, would be 2018. Beg your pardon. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to time, time travel. Machine, yeah. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, into the, I'm into the character. Yeah. Anyway, uh, in, in 2018, quite right. Um, but we're also doing it, uh, plan, we're planning to do it at, at Vimy, okay. uh, on the centenary of the battle, uh, which would be... Uh, Okay, cool. And people can hear that on your SoundCloud right yep. now. Is there going to be a recording? Or? Well, that would be ideal, where it's okay. all in the works, you know. Um, okay. um, so we're hoping to do that there. Well, I'd love, we'd also love to do it in, in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, next year. You know, next year is not only the centenary of Vimy, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, which for Canadians is very important. It's also the 150th anniversary of Canadian Confederation. Okay. So it's our 150th birthday. And so it's very fitting that perhaps that we offer a range of Canadian works um, uh, next year. It would be okay. great, for example, to do that in Chicago. Right? Yes. Another area I just wanted to touch on with you is uh, Canada yeah. and Canadianness. Yeah. And what is the scene right now for Canada for, well, for specifically for song, but also maybe for 
early music or the type of opera that you're developing, or I see you had like this commission or this new premiere you did, the Unknown Soldier, yeah. and like just trying to figure like how. Well, I guess maybe it's not really specific to Canada, but I do want to know if you understand the difference between like the American system and maybe a Canadian system, or maybe versus the German system. Yeah. You know, uh, th- that's, in terms and, of what training. Well, yeah, that's where they're growing singers. They're growing singers in England. They're yeah. growing singers, you know, yeah. in in North America. Well, you know, I, I'm not, you know, completely up to speed with the American. Um, since I know there's the great schools here, yeah. and I, I, you know, I tell you what, American singers have these fab. Fabulous, uh, have a fabulous reputation for preparedness. I think that's, okay. that's uh, fair to say that's the reputation, you know. Um, what about, are we known for technique? Yeah, I would say so. It, okay. it, you know, there's solid singers that come from America, there's no question. And, uh, you know, I've had the good fortune of working uh, with the uh, Joan Dorman program, for example. Okay. Uh, you know, Joan Dorman is a, a coach at the Met, uh, assistant conductor there, and she runs this fabulous program uh, at Virginia Tech and in Montreal. And she Man, she's big like an audition technique, right? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I guess that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, um, she's a taskmaster, and she, yeah. she gets a lot out of, out of her people. But she has this young people's program. That's actually where I met Cheryl Milnes and, and so subsequently worked with him uh, role preparation. You know, so she opens uh, possibilities to, to young singers, and for that we must be very grateful. And that's been my principal exposure to, to American young singers. Um, but as I said, they come; they have this reputation of being very, very well prepared. Um, the English system, you know, there are the, the principal schools in London, and, and mm-hmm. there's, uh, uh, Scotland, there's Edinburgh as well, and uh, uh, Glasgow, and uh, sorry, Glasgow and uh, and Manchester as well, and they pump out lots of great singers. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no question. You know, the problem with all these uh, these singers is that there, of course, there are limited opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and uh, you know, in London, I've heard one number at one point that's like 150. New young singers that are produced every year, uh, and of course there aren't 150 jobs. Yeah, <laughs> so this is tough. Now in, in Germany, you know, um, I think the great advantage in Germany is that you know there are 100 and 110, 100 houses, mm-hmm. opera houses, and they have a completely different system there. They you are able to get what's called a fest uh, contract, so a, a permanent position. You're an employee right. of, of the, uh, the opera house. And then you're cast as your Fach and you sing all the roles that are in your One fach. hopes. Yeah. One hopes. Now, sometimes that the Fach, you know, uh, can be uh, spread quite wide. What, and they so call you Cavalier Baritone? Yeah, I'd be right. a Cavalier Baritone, a Cavalier slash Lyric somewhere in there. Yeah. You know, um, and I guess that changes as one yeah. progresses. Have you sung on Jägen? By now, by no, that would be ideal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The Russian's a bit of a struggle. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, I've done, I've done extracts in, in English, actually. Okay. A fabulous uh, English national opera. But um, in any case, the, the, I think the, the whole structure in Germany is such that, you know, there are tremendous opportunities for young singers. So mm-hmm. if you get on a fest contract mm-hmm. at, a, at a decent house uh, in Germany, you can very quickly get through a whole slew of roles. Yeah. roles. And, uh, and so there are actually a lot of American singers over there. Um, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great. You did, I was really excited about the Epic of Gilgamesh for Angela Mead. And yeah. then I ended up saying, oh, wow, the baritone's really good it's, in this show. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, Angela's fabulous. Yeah. She's great. And, and good one. And also Dane. Dane, yeah. Dane Thomas right from right here in Chicago, I tell you. Um, lovely sound as well. And the choir. Yeah. No, we really, we're really lucky to have this organization. And the reason why we can do crazy 
works like Gilgamesh is that nobody's buying tickets. It's like, this yeah. is, we're presenting what we want to present, you know? You know it was, leave it, you it was know? so satisfying to see those folks in those chairs because, yeah. you know, obviously you can't see beyond yeah. that because the lights, yeah. but see those people so engaged, particularly yeah. last night. I think last night was Oh, better. last night was much better for yeah. crowd. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then the people stayed. I mean, think about Fridays that there's like train schedules and people are like half coming from work and then yeah. they want to get home, you know? Sure. But Saturday, yesterday was performance was like really exciting and yeah. it felt tighter. And for us, yeah, it was yeah. tighter for sure. Yeah. And and it just it just you know you get a little bit more comfortable in this second. Yeah. I have to say because it is you know it's it's Martinu. It's not the easiest music, frankly. Yeah. And so uh, you know for everybody, it's it's a bit of a challenge. And so I think you you know the second night is you know, jitters are a little bit uh, less and you can just start interpreting it. Yeah. And we 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 allowed ourselves that. I think uh, I think there were, there were some very moving moments. Yeah, I had some you know people come to this festival and they're just literally walking through the park and they have no idea that what's going on. Great. And then they stop and they listen yeah. and then they ask, like the lights go up and they ask everybody's like, what was that? You know, <laughs> it's like, what is this piece? You know, like, is it an opera? And like, you mm-hmm. got to answer like all the questions. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, that's like, fun. that's a, just a tremendous thing. Yeah. And to think that those people most likely would never come to a concert hall. Right. Yeah, so, exactly. so, you know, that's a, that's an admirable thing. So I'm, I'm amazed at this festival and, uh, and I hope it, uh, you get invited back. <laughs> oh, I do hope that, that's for sure. But uh, I, I do hope it continues on because uh, I know they, they, you know, it's not a given. The, the, the financial backing is not a given. It has to be renewed every year. So I hope that uh, they might be very, continue to be very generous. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Giovanna Jacques. Here we are back on Opera Box Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. We are on WNUR.org slash pop up. George Cedarquist here with Tobias Wright. What a great interview we just had. <laughs> Wasn't that dope? That was, a- <laughs> that was dope. You took my word. No, that's fantastic. What a guy. I mean, just so intelligent and so articulate, and he's lived an incredible life. Lived an incredible life, and you know what I loved? We were talking about, they were talking about the the World War uh, I stuff, and and the text for that music being from the actual soldiers, uh, the French, German, English um, Mm -hmm. languages, she said, that were represented there, and I just thought that's fantastic, and Oliver's totally right. Um, I do love... Uh, military history, and I think specifically World War II fascinates me. And yeah. then hearing how the music um, is straightforward, that reminded me a lot of Poulenc and what he wrote, and that was just straightforward music, and it just was what it had to be for that moment. So awesome stuff. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, that was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, David John Pike, and thank you, Oliver Camacho. I'm going to dial up the two-minute drill right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
Time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. Jonas Kaufmann has canceled the rest of his performances in Wagner's Die Valkyrie at Baden-Baden on medical advice. He was to sing Sigmund with René Papa as Wotan, Eva-Marie Westbrook as Sieglinde, conducted by Valerie Gergev and directed by Uwe Erik Laufenberg. Over to the Bayreuth Festspiele, and as part of the intensified security for this year's Parsifal, which has a decidedly Islamist theme, the festival has banned seat cushions and handbags from the Festspielhaus. It's also asking patrons to arrive at least 45 minutes early for security checks. More drama related to the production Harmut Henschen has signed on to conduct after Andres Nelsons walked out. Henschen is 73 and the former music director of the Dutch National Opera. And the official reason for Nelson's quitting was this, quote, owing to a differing approach in various matters, the atmosphere at this year's Bayreuth Festival did not develop in a mutually comfortable way for all parties. Kentucky Opera has named a permanent general director after a year without one. Ian Derer comes to Louisville from the Dallas Opera, where he's been an artistic administrator and a member of the senior management team for the past two years. Derer is the opera's fifth general director and replaces David Roth, who died in a car accident last year. The man who serves as Opera Omaha's resident music director has pled guilty on elder abuse charges. John Gauff Jr. pleaded no contest to taking over $100,000 from his mother, who's in a nursing home, to fuel his gambling habit. And finally, baritone Vasil Slepak has been killed by a sniper in military action in Ukraine. Slepak left his native Ukraine in the 1990s to settle in France, where he regularly sang at the Paris Opera. He then returned home in 2014 to join a volunteer battalion to fight Russian-backed separatists on the country's eastern front. He was 41. That's the two-minute drill. Tobias Wright, what's uh, of interest there to you? Okay, wait, what was the name of the last singer? Vasil Slepak. Um, so between that and then, um, what's going on at, uh, for the production of Parsifal at the Bayreuth, you think of everything and then what's going on here in the United States. And I just have to really, really clearly state how grateful I am that I get to sing and that I get to share my Monday nights with you and Oliver and Giovanna, and we get to talk about this beautiful, beautiful thing that is music, not just opera, but music. Um, and then you hear of a singer who, more than being a singer, was just a man who believed in a cause and, and love for his country and went and was killed by a sniper. Can you imagine quitting your job, George, um, to not go to war, but to defend your country? He was home, and you think about that, and that's incredible. Um, and then to ask patrons at Bayreuth to come 45 minutes early uh, to ban seat cushions uh, because of a, a Parsifal production that is going mm. that is going to heighten tensions that are already heightened. And again, they're two different things, but that's our world that we live in in 2016, and it's it's crazy. And like I said, I'm just grateful that I I am where I am today, and that those are I don't know. There's nothing that I can say that's going to make me sound any any more intelligent or, I, I, I don't know, it's just incredible to me that those things happen. I, it really just blows my mind. And suddenly I have a really heavy heart and I want to hug you, but you're on the other <laughs> side of the studio. You, you, you can't hug me and you can't hug Oliver, who's, who's not here either. Uh, we're going to dial it up for Monday evening quarterback. Oliver went to the Ryan Opera Center concert at the Harris Theater for music and dance, and the special guest was Renee Fleming. Can you guess what she sang as an encore? And here's a hint. I could have spread my wings. 
National Association of Teachers of Singing 54th National Conference Guest Artist Concert, which featured members of the Ryan Opera Center, I think every one of them, uh, with special guest Renee Fleming. Renee Fleming gave us a lot of music. Uh, it was supposed to be a young artist concert, but she uh, sang probably half the program. Uh, she started off singing the Lipiamo or the Brindisi from uh, La Traviata with tenor Jesse Donner. Then she gave us the song Aprile by Francesco Paolo Tosti. Uh, later on in the program, we heard her Adieu, Notre Petite Table, the aria from Massenet's Manon. And then some duets, uh, the Lachme duet with mezzo-soprano Annie Rosen and the Pavan by Gabrielle Fauré with the new contralto, uh, Lauren Decker, who just joined the Ryan Center. Uh, the second half was more pops-based, more English and uh, musical theater. Uh, she did sing the aria from A Streetcar Named Desire, uh, I Can Smell the Sea Air. And uh, she closed the program with Somewhere Over the Rainbow and You'll Never Walk Alone uh, with the entire ensemble. And You'll Never Walk Alone ended up being a sing-along with the entire Nats conference. So it was very uh, beautiful to hear over a thousand people uh, singing along with Renee Fleming. Hard to get the timing right with something like that. But anyway, that's what happened. Then a couple of encores happened, uh, including I Could Have Danced All Night which also was a soprano sing-along, and there were many sopranos in the audience. And those of you who are familiar with Renee Fleming's YouTube or examples of her singing on YouTube, you might know how the I Could Have Danced All Night might have went. Uh, It wasn't as outrageous as uh, the infamous one that's out there, but it was pretty out there. And she closed the program uh, by singing O Mio Babino Caro, uh, which was actually gorgeous. It was probably her best singing of the night. And the program took just over two hours and she sang a lot of it and uh, her voice got better and better uh, as the night went on. The Andre Previn aria um, in the second half of the show uh, was stunning. Um, The challenge of this program is that it was necessary to trot out each of the Ryan Center singers and they each got to either sing a song or an aria or an ensemble. Some uh, had a couple of performances. Tenor Jesse Donner uh, sang with Renee Fleming in the Brindisi. He also sang a duet from uh, William Walton's Troilus and Cressida with Anne Toomey. And he also sang um, the duet, the finale duet from Carmen with Annie Rosen. Um, but the challenge, as I, was, as I was saying, of this program is that these singers were obliged to sing in various styles sometimes in styles that maybe they're not used to singing in, uh, like pop. And it really did show Renee Fleming in a great light that she was able to sing uh, in, you know, art song and in opera and in musical theater. She did all of it very, very well, I have to say. So Renee Fleming gets an A, because George wants me to give letter grades out to these things, um, for just being like a galvanizing presence uh, in this conference. Uh, And if you don't know what NATS is, it's this organization that promotes the teaching of singing and organizes singing teachers and singers and 
has competitions and conferences and symposiums, and it really does create a professional community amongst singers and teachers. It's an amazing organization, and the conference this year had lots to offer, uh, such as a masterclass with Renee Fleming, masterclasses with Warren Jones and the famous voice teacher Stephen Smith, as well as so many lectures, and even a a Liederstube, which is something that those of you who live in Chicago might have heard of. It's an art song jamming uh, leader salon. So that was Nats. That was last night. The conference continues until tomorrow, but by the time you're hearing this, it's probably over. Uh, it was nice to hear some of the newer members of the Ryan Opera Center who just joined the cast, notably uh, Emmett O'Hanlon, who is a strikingly handsome, like devastatingly handsome baritone, uh, who also sings with Celtic Thunder. And uh, he sang that song that Michael Bublé sings, uh, Feeling Good. I know other people sing it, but he sort of looks like uh, an in-shape <laughs> Michael Bublé <laughs> with a square jaw. Uh, I have to give credit to Bradley Smoke, uh, who is one of the Ryan Center uh, bass baritones. This is his third year. Bradley came away unscathed with all that was required of these young artists. Um, like I said, it was challenging for them. But uh, he did an amazing job, and he really hammed it up in his pop selection, which was called Lydia, the Tattooed Lady, another song by Harold Arlen. So that's my rundown of the concert. Renee Fleming did, in fact, change dresses during the intermission. And uh, the atmosphere in this uh, venue was just like a party. So many people uh, were singers or singing teachers uh, that it really did feel uh, like a community in there. And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful concert. Back to you, boys, in the studio. Thanks, Oliver. Uh, appreciate the update, the Monday evening quarterbacking. I, I will say I've never understood the whole young artist thing where, like, everybody gets a turn to go up on stage because inevitably it's, it never works out equally. Like, somebody always gets to do more than someone else. It's, mm. it, you should do multiple events during the season and try and balance it out over, like, a body of work over well, this the is one of those. this is one of, the, one of those events. I mean, this wasn't okay. the end-all, be-all. No. Um, oh, fair enough. I will say, though, having been at Young Artist Programs where that happens, sometimes you really get the short end of the stick, and you're like, oh, I loved my music, however, now that I see what everybody else can say. Yeah, dude, but but look, sometimes there's nights when you're like, I don't have to do anything? Fantastic. Great. Um, Great. I'm grateful that I don't have to prepare. Just talking about that, though, I love the idea that they made the Ryan Center uh, singers, who are some of the best young singers that we have. Um, I love that they had them sing some pop. How cool is that? And I don't think that there's enough of that. I think there's this, like, huge fear. Yeah. Um, And maybe with good reason. But whatever, I thought that was really cool to hear, and I love that she sang Art Song by Tosti because I love Tosti and I love Aprile. Um, That was just cool to hear. You're listening to Opera Box Score. We are going to wrap this show up with Good Call, Bad Call. Good Call, Bad Call on Opera Box Score. All right, Tobias, right? You can go first. What's your good call or your bad call this my, week? My good call, my good call is a tease for what we're going to hopefully be talking about on our show next week, and that is tease me. new music being written about current events. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to be really, I'm purposely being vague. Well, that was very specific and very vague yeah. at the same time. 
Uh, I got a bad call. T- today is the home run derby of the uh, Major League Baseball. Tomorrow is the All-Star Game. And, like, this is the bottom of the sports season for me. Like, there is nothing remotely interesting about I mean, about we just that. had Wimbledon, which was great. Yeah, Wimbledon, we had the We European got the Olympics coming, dude. And, and yeah, Portugal just... Dude, sports are great right now. But you're talking about the past. That's all over. Okay. okay. I'm still no- running the high of the Portugal win yesterday. I, I, I didn't even watch... Oh, it was awesome! It was great theater. Once England lost to Iceland, my team England, <laughs> I, that was that was it for me, and that's it for tonight's show. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. For WNUR, our programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Opera Box Score. Be sure to like our Facebook page, and if you know people who would enjoy our show, help us spread the word by sharing our posts. On our website, operaboxscore.squarespace.com, you can stream archived episodes and learn more about our team. And you can always email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast version of our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And hey, don't just listen to the podcast. Be a grown-up. Leave a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Giovanna Jacques, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera. Just make sure you're well hydrated. We're back live on WNUR on Monday, July 18 at 9 p.m. Central. You're listening to WNUR. 89.3 FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.